And I think the pattern is clear here. We could see uh, the disenfranchised, disillusioned, forgotten and excluded uh, Sunni uh, leadership in Iraq as the roots of the next version, maybe, you know, Jihad 3.0, um, even after the fall of ISIS. And he does this by, it's, on the one hand, it's the use of proxies. On the other hand, it's pretty blatant. I mean, he's providing Russian advisors, Russian command and control, Russian heavy equipment. I mean, you see, I mean, we have pictures of Russian tanks on Russian tank transporters crossing the border from Russia into Ukraine and being handed off to uh, Ukrainian separatists. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. And for this episode, MWI's Major Jake Moroli got the chance to speak with Ambassador Doug Lute, a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General who held senior positions in both the George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations, both in uniform and after retiring from the Army. In his time in the White House, he played a key role in strategies for Iraq and Afghanistan, and when he left his White House job and was named U.S. Ambassador to NATO, he gained even more first-hand experience with a range of challenges confronting the alliance. He talks about all of these experiences and more in what is really a fascinating conversation. Before we get to it, though, just a couple quick notes. First, remember that if you're not following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It really is a great way to stay up to date on all of the articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's Jake Moraldi's conversation with Ambassador Doug Lute. Well, Ambassador Lute, thank you for sitting down to talk with us today. I really appreciate the time. Not at all. It's good to be back in Washington Hall. So I want to start out for listeners that maybe are not necessarily familiar with you, with just some of your general background and what your uh, recent experience has been. So uh, I was last in Washington Hall, I suppose, uh, as a cadet uh, just before graduating in 1975. Um, so I'm, uh, I guess, by, by now an old grad uh, by, West Point, uh, by West Point terminology. Uh, I spent most of my uh, tactical days in the Army as an Army Cavalry officer, uh, initially uh, along the border, along the Iron Curtain border uh, between uh, West Germany and Czechoslovakia and the uh, East German uh, Republic. Um, and then uh, over time uh, moved into the joint arena, uh, first as a, a one-star commanding forces, U.S. forces in Kosovo. Uh, then uh, a series of operational jobs at the sort of high operational strategic end. So Deputy uh, J3 at UCOM in Stuttgart, uh, then two years under John Abizade uh, as the J3 in CENTCOM. So that's 04 to 06. Uh, from there, the Joint Staff Operations job as a, as a three-star uh, Joint Staff J3. And then from there, my career took a decided uh, turn <laughs> and an unexpected turn uh, when um, as part, frankly, as part of the George Bush decision to surge U.S. troops in Iraq in 2007, he decided he wanted his own guy in the West Wing, keeping him abreast of developments in Iraq and to a lesser extent, Afghanistan, Iraq dominated, uh, but also uh, someone who could better coordinate 
the cross-government efforts uh, in those two war theaters. So I went to the West Wing uh, under Bush in 07, uh, stayed across the transition to Obama until 2013, so six years across those two administrations, dealing mostly with uh, the wars uh, near the end of the Obama administration. My time in the Obama administration had more to do with South Asia. So it was, I'd sort of left the Iraq account and now was focused very much as the Obama administration was on uh, South Asia, uh, Pakistan and Afghanistan in particular. And then in 13 went to uh, my last job on federal, uh, on the federal record, uh, which is uh, uh, the U.S. ambassador to NATO. Uh, and that, you know, that job was interesting uh, because I actually went to NATO thinking, well, you know, I need a break uh, and I need to get out of the White House and, and I also need to do something other than these wars because, you know, it's just a drag. Uh, and I thought, what a better place to kind of close my career because I started in NATO sure. along the Iron Curtain, closed my career as the U.S. ambassador to NATO, you know, there's a little symmetry there. And everything looked good for about six months. And then Putin took Crimea, destabilized the Donbass, Baghdadi takes Mosul, declares the caliphate. And the period from 2014 to the end of the Obama administration was, uh, was really interesting. So given the, the vast experience that you have sort of in our two major theaters that we're thinking about recently in, in the past couple of years, I want to kind of touch each of them in kind, and I'll start sure. with Iraq and Afghanistan. And, you know, in 2007, you became the Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I'm curious what that, to, as a definitional thing, sort of what the duties entailed in that job and, and what your role was in managing those two potentially very different sorts of fights. Right. So when I initially went to the White House in the summer of 07, it was actually part of George uh, President George Bush's decision to surge into Iraq. And you know, you'll, your listeners will appreciate that this was a bold and decisive move to try to rescue Iraq from the sectarian violence, which was spiraling out of control in 2006, right? So you had Sunni on Shia violence, which actually suggested that Iraq might slip into full-scale civil war. Uh, and that violence was um, the premier foreign policy topic in 2006, early 2007 for the Bush administration, the president takes the decision to add to the 15 U.S. combat brigades then in Iraq another five. So this is the famous U.S. surge uh, in the first six months of 2007. And as part of that surge, the president also decided that he needed closer contact, daily contact with what was going on in Iraq. Uh, so he needed somebody to stay in touch for him with uh, Dave Petraeus, our ambassador, and Ryan Crocker, uh, sorry, Dave Petraeus, our uh, commanding officer, and Ryan Crocker, our ambassador in Iraq, thereby keeping the president informed and keeping the, the policy that he had decided closely aligned, sort of across civil military lines. So that was, that was my job um, in the White House in 2007. So while in that position, you mentioned, obviously, the surge is going on, there's a re-emphasis on, on the civil sort of military linkage and the, the synergistic effects that you can have with that. What were some of your special areas of emphasis in your, in your position? Was it just managing the surge and trying to get CivMil to work together or were there other special areas of emphasis? Well, so actually my, the, the area where I had least concerns were the military surge. Because, you know, I mean, 
you're in the military. You know how this works. I mean, the orders are issued, the tip fit is designed, the deployment schedule, the, you know, and this just happens. So I had high confidence, I have high confidence in our military to do what it's told to do. And when the president ordered five additional brigades uh, into Iraq, I knew month by month that they were going to meet that program. And in fact, they did. Um, I was more concerned with tracking that progress and continually reporting to the president that this was on track. I was as much concerned about that as I was uh, the other dimensions of the fight. And here, uh, the political dimensions in particular were very critical. Uh, so the Maliki government um, uh, was still under formation. Um, Maliki was finding his feet uh, politically. Uh, he uh, was addressing pressures from Iran uh, politically. Uh, he was working with a newly elected parliament, uh, which itself was trying to find its feet. Uh, and all this time, uh, especially by the time we get into 2008, the U.S. in the last year of the Bush administration was asking the question, um, so what follows George Bush with regard to U.S. policy in Iraq? And, and that led to a multi-month effort to uh, agree with the Iraqis to reach agreement on what was called the Strategic Framework Agreement and then later the Strategic Partnership Agreement, which essentially had the Iraqi parliament um, agreeing that U.S. forces would the mandate for U.S. forces would be extended from the end of the Bush administration in 2008, three years later, until uh, the end of uh, December 2011. So the politics of this were actually more concerned for me than the military dimension, which I was pretty confident would take place as advertised. So in 2007, obviously the war in Iraq is not going great. It's it we're really, as you said, the surge is an effort to, to rescue the mission there. Um, and I'm curious, as you progressed in your job from 2007 to 8, 9 and on, we started to turn the tide a little bit. And I'm curious what that looked like from your position. What what were some of the indicators that we were starting to, to change the narrative or turn the tide a little bit? Well, the most decisive thing on the security front was um, was the slowing the diminishment of sectarian violence, which, you know, is something that, you know, that can be measured. I mean, this is the number of, you know, human remains found on the streets of Baghdad every morning uh, after a night of sectarian violence. And by, so President Bush makes his decision, announces it to the nation in January 2007. Uh, beginning in February, the U.S. deploys an additional brigade per month. So February, March, April, May, June, the surge is now in place, right? And just a couple months later, by sort of Labor Day, early September of 2007, Dave Petraeus and Ryan Crocker are able to come back and testify before Congress that they see early indicators that the sectarian violence is diminishing. Um, you know, as as good Americans, we like to say, well, this had to, we had to be responsible for this. I actually think there were a number, at least four or five factors that uh, caused this noticeable decline in sectarian violence. Uh, and let me just tick through these because it's important, I think, in any discussion about the surge to appreciate that this was not a single variable equation. This was a multivariable equation. Here are some of the other variables. So first of all, the year prior, 2006, Muqtada al-Sadr had taken the Jaysh al-Mahdi 
Shia militia off the battlefield. So a, a section of the insurgency, a, a significant portion of the insurgency, the Shia section, had largely diminished even before the presidential speech to the nation. So there's a factor, right? While all this uh, conventional surge is going on, Stan McChrystal and JSOC have been pounding al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, and in particular the senior leadership of al-Qaeda in Iraq. And by the time that we're surging conventional forces, JSOC had reached a peak in terms of suppressing the most violent part of the Sunni insurgency, AQI. So that's another factor. Uh, very prominent in this role were, was the decision by, on, first by Anbari, Sunni tribal leaders, to swap sides. You'll recall that in 2006, uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq had declared Anbar province as the caliphate. Now, you know, these days we think of another caliphate, the so-called Islamic State Caliphate, but the first caliphate declared in Iraq was by AQI back in 2006. And so the Anbari citizens, the Sunni citizens of Anbar, had already experienced firsthand what AQI's image of a caliphate was. Uh, and by the fall of 2006, that very brutal image of the potential future for Anbar had been rejected by the Sunni, um, Sunni leaders in Anbar, and this led to what is now called the awakening, right? So you have Sunni tribal leaders declaring allegiance to us and rejecting AQI. So that certainly had uh, an impact. And then frankly, in a more sort of brutal way, a lot of this, by the time the five brigades of the U.S. conventional surge hit in and around Baghdad, much of the sectarian violence had burned out because mixed neighborhoods had been, had been homogenized, if you will, or, or you know, had been ethnically cleansed in a way. So some of that violence had played out. I, I don't know the weights that today we should assign to these four or five variables. Uh, I think clearly the U.S. troop surge was important because it did focus on the center of gravity of Baghdad. But it may have been equally important, and it did have some weight. It may have been equally important as a, psych a psychological message that at a time when things were going poorly, it very clearly signaled to the Iraqi uh, leadership and the Iraqi citizenry that we were doubling down and we weren't leaving them. That psychological impact, I think, must have had a very positive impact on the Sunni awakening, for example, uh, because it must have reinforced psychologically that the awakening decision to swap sides and aside with us was a good decision. So I think the serious history of this and the surge and the impact of the surge and then how it led to decreased violence late in 07 and going into 08 um, has yet to be written, uh, but it's a really complicated multivariable equation. So obviously Iraq has, has had problems since the time that you were there. Um, we had a bit of a relapse with the, the advent of ISIS and the, the Islamic Caliphate in Iraq. And we've sort of been successful over the past few years in, in stemming the tide of, of the Caliphate and really essentially destroying the Caliphate at this point, I think it at least the, to say. At least the physical dimensions of the Caliphate. Right. So 
My question for you, having experience in, in Iraq, especially what were some of those signals and are there are there corollaries between what happened during your time in Iraq and what we were able to achieve against ISIS or are they very are they two different circumstances to, to draw parallels? Well, they are different, but they have some common roots. Uh, I mean, uh, first of all, just in terms of personalities, right? I mean, what we know that al-Baghdadi, the self-declared uh, caliph of the so-called Islamic State, uh, had his jihadi roots in al-Qaeda in Iraq uh, and had been one time detained by, by U.S. forces uh, because of that role. So we know that there's some common personalities here that connect AQI in the period 06, 07, 08 to the Islamic State um, more recently. Uh, more troubling, though, I think, aside, setting aside those personalities, are the common roots of both of these movements. So uh, this is fundamentally a political issue that has its roots in the upheaval caused by the overthrow of Saddam. So here you have Saddam Hussein rules for with an iron hand for 30 years um, with a Sunni minority controlling the Shia majority in Iraq. Then in 2003, fall of Baghdad, that political equation gets turned on its head. And you now have the Shia majority who have lived brutally for 30 years under this oppression of Saddam, finding themselves in the majority in a potentially emerging democracy. The rest of the story plays out from there. I mean, the, on the Shia side of the equation, uh, they learned well from Saddam. Uh, they uh, had all grown up in a zero-sum political world in Iraq, where if something was good for one side, it was bad for the other and to be resisted. And so when they seized political power in Iraq, that was their basic approach, zero-sum mentality um, and the winner takes all. Uh, on the Sunni side of the equation, uh, there was initially, uh, with the fall of Saddam, disbelief mm -hmm. that they were no longer going to be in this privileged political position uh, to control the country, uh, which they viewed as their rightful position. They had learned from the Saddam period that this was their rightful authority. Uh, they rejected that upheaval initially. Then they moved into active resistance, which fundamentally was the roots of the Sunni uh, insurgency. Uh, and then over time, as it became apparent that they were going to be in the political minority, uh, they, they made their claim for a fair share of the political action in Iraq. And frankly, they were never welcomed into that political uh, dialogue with the majority Shia. So you have a combination of, you know, turning the Iraq on its head politically, uh, the Shia in a zero-sum mentality, winner takes all, and the Sunnis moving into a period of being disenfranchised and excluded, right? which I think had its roots, those are the common roots of both the Iraqi insurgency at the time of the surge, 07, 06, 07, 08. But later, um, you know, five or six years later, those are the same common roots of ISIS, uh, where ISIS was able to take advantage of 
the disenfranchised political state of the Sunnis, uh, who had received little by way of the uh, promises of the Shia majority government, and were, um, were ready to once again take their fight to the streets. So there's some common ground here between these two versions, and frankly, your next question is probably, so does this, what does this portend for the future? You, and, you got it, sir. Yeah, and, and I think the pattern is clear here. We could see, you know, we could see jihad Roman numeral three uh, springing from the disenfranchised, disillusioned, excluded, forgotten and excluded uh, Sunni uh, leadership in, um, in Iraq as the roots of the next version, maybe, you know, Jihad 3.0, um, even after the fall of ISIS. So yeah, it's troubling. And, it, and, and what I think this, what your question uh, highlights is that the violence, the insurgency is a symptom, but the roots are deeper than that. And to get to the roots, you've really got to get to the politics of the problem. So these, you know, I mean, the, the Anbari citizenry, the, the Sunni Arab minority in Iraq are not sort of temperamentally violent. This isn't predetermined, you know, violence. The violence is a symptom, and we've got to get at the root causes. So with that, I want to transition over to your, your other latest role, which is <coughs> as ambassador to NATO. Um, you know, I'd like to follow kind of a similar arc in, in the questions. And you mentioned up front that you thought going to NATO you, was going to be sort of a, a cushy end of, end of career job, maybe. A, little, a, position, a, little strenuous. a position from which to reflect on global events. <laughs> so that obviously didn't necessarily work out for you. Uh, but I'm curious, in, in your job, sort of what the areas of special emphasis were as ambassador to Argentina, what were the things you were focused on? Obviously, Russia was big right. and, and stuff going on in the Middle East as well. So it turns out that, so I, I went there in um, late summer, early fall of 2013. Things were quiet for about six months. And then... Beginning in early 2014, things dramatically changed. And they changed on multiple fronts. So first of all, to the east of NATO, uh, Putin's um, resurgence uh, with uh, ultranationalism, um, opposition to NATO, and so forth, really came to the front when he seized the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. So this is the first time since 1945 that one nation state seized the sovereign territory of another uh, and claimed it as their own. Uh, and, and this is the illegal Russian annexation of, of Crimea. Uh, a couple months later, so now the spring of 2014, uh, Putin applies a different model to the Donbass. So these two easternmost provinces of mainland Ukraine adjacent to the Russian border uh, and uh, sponsors Ukrainian proxy thugs uh, in a, I think, phony insurgency against the central government of Ukraine. He does this by, it's, on the one hand, it's the use of proxies. On the other hand, it's pretty blatant. I mean, he's providing Russian advisors, Russian command and control, Russian heavy equipment. I mean, you see, I mean, we have pictures of Russian tanks on Russian tank transporters crossing the border from Russia into Ukraine and being handed off to uh, Ukrainian separatists. Uh, but these, uh, this weaponry includes uh, high-end artillery, high-end air defense, 
uh, high-end armor uh, and so forth. So this is, this is not subtle. Uh, this is Vladimir Putin with a heavy hand in uh, the Donbass in eastern Ukraine. So all of that's happening uh, to the east of NATO. By June, so now just a couple months later, right, uh, but all within the first six months of 2014, you have al-Baghdadi to NATO south uh, declaring the caliphate in the, in the, in the Grand Mosque in uh, Mosul. Um, and, of course, this so-called caliphate is immediately adjacent to NATO's boundary, NATO's border. And that's because Turkey, NATO ally, bounds northern Syria and northern Iraq. Uh, so you have all of that. So all of this is playing out in, in sort of light speed um, uh, at NATO headquarters. So NATO faces simultaneously not only the resurgent Russia to the east, but this now so-called caliphate to the south. And within a year of the caliphate, Europe begins to receive uh, mass migration. Coming out of uh, Syria and Iraq uh, in uh, 2015, and by 2016, those migrants being joined by mass migration uh, coming out of uh, uh, more broadly the Middle East and, and Africa. Over the period 2015 and 2016, a million and a half illegal refugees, uh, illegal migrants, some of whom were refugees, right? But not all. But a million and a half uh, migrants landed on European shores. So when you think about a million and a half refugees and what those what the caring, feeding, resettling of those people mean to NATO's democratic uh, nation states. Uh, the combination of these things were very severe. And then finally, uh, 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 maybe challenges to the east, challenges to NATO south, very diverse differences, right? I mean, the Russia things looks a little familiar to NATO. Sure. I mean, you know, you could kind of pull out the file drawer and, you know, figure out how to deter Russia. But ISIS and mass migration looks unusual to NATO, and it's not clear that NATO's a good fit for those challenges. At the same time, east and south, you have what I consider a third challenge, and that's the internal challenges to NATO, uh, a alliance now of 29 nations, 29 democratic nations, who in the second by agreeing to the Washington Treaty, in the second sentence of the Washington Treaty, which founded NATO in 1949, these 29 democracies agree to come together with the founding values of democracy, individual liberty, and rule of law. So internally, you have to ask, how do those values measure up against Mr. Erdogan's Turkey, or Mr. Orban's Hungary, or some elements of the politics we see today in Poland, for example. And frankly, as Americans, we, I think we have to look seriously about those values and how they're playing out here in America as well. So you have this internal dimension on top of East and South, which I really think have made the last several years of NATO a very challenging strategic inflection point. President Obama at the Warsaw Summit in 2016 called this a pivotal moment for NATO, and I think that's a good phrase. He was, he's always pretty articulate. So I'm curious with, with all that, with, you know, especially the, the sort of three major challenges you highlighted, Russia, you know, combating extremism, 
in the Middle East or, or North Africa or potentially the Sahel even uh, is maybe within NATO's mandate. Um, and then the internal challenges to values and democracy sort of more generally across Western Europe. Which of those sort of rises to the fore to you? Which of those do you think is sort of the, maybe not an existential threat to NATO, but the one that is putting the most strain on the alliance? Well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, to the East, with regard to contending with this resurgent, now more aggressive Russia, uh, while it on the one hand feels more comfortable for NATO because having, you know, survived 40 years of the Cold War, confronting the Soviet Union, many of the principles of conventional nuclear deterrence, which NATO has dusted off and updated and has now uh, emplaced again on the eastern flank, those seem familiar. And those seem, I think, uh, those seem like they are most appropriate to NATO's original mandate, which is collective defense, right? An attack on one is an attack on all. So the result of that is we're doing some things that look uh, rather, uh, rather sensible, in my view, and, and predictable. We have NATO troops today where they were never before stationed prior to Crimea and Ukraine. Uh, so we have NATO troops stationed in uh, the three Baltic states and uh, in Poland. Why those four NATO allies? Because those are the four with land borders with Russia. Uh, we have U.S. troops, by the way, leading the way in Poland in one of the four uh, battalion-sized battle groups that, that NATO has, uh, has positioned forward in the east. Then we have a, a larger U.S. contingent, a, uh, both an aviation brigade and an armor brigade, uh, stationed under U.S. authorities, uh, also centered in that same Central and Eastern European space. So we've made, I think, prudent steps to bolster nuclear deterrence and conventional deterrence in response to this Russian challenge. Uh, the part of the Russian challenge that NATO is lagging on and not as well prepared to contend with is that part of the challenge which lays below the conventional threshold. So in NATO, we call these uh, hybrid tactics, but these are misinformation campaigns, meddling with elections, cyber attacks, uh, working with, uh, to, to, to disaffect uh, minority Russian-speaking populations in some European states. So in both Estonia and Latvia, for example, have about 30% of their population is Russian-speaking. Um, and maybe don't feel fully uh, citizens of those NATO states. So these sorts of tactics, uh, sort of eroding democracies from inside, are also very much a part of the Russian playbook. In fact, as Americans, we should, you know, we should be fully aware that some of these tactics are familiar here, right? This, this is the Russian meddling, uh, both in terms of attempts to penetrate our election system in 2016, but also attempts to influence public opinion by, uh, by way of uh, misinformation campaigns on social media platforms. So we've got a taste of hybrid tactics mm -hmm. here as well. NATO is not as well suited to contend with those, and I think that's an area where NATO has, has the most work to do. Uh, with regard to the challenges to the South, the big issue there for NATO is teamwork with the European Union because whether it's terrorism on the streets of European capitals or dealing with mass migration from Middle East and Africa, uh, NATO is not in the lead. NATO is in a supporting role. 
So that supporting role has us forming teams with the EU, which does have responsibility and jurisdiction for some of these issues, and doing what we can to bolster our European institutional partner, the EU. Uh, the one that bothers me the most, I think we're going to deal with those two. The one that bothers me the most is this internal drift from values. Because I'm not sure once you begin to question the values that have been the glue of NATO for 70 years, how you get back to those basics. And so the space that I would offer we should all be watching closely is this potential drift away from values. Well, sir, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. That's not all. All the time, all the time we have. So, thank okay. You. Thanks thank for, you for thanks uh, for what you do. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, hopefully you're already subscribed to the podcast. If not, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take just a couple quick moments and leave us a rating or give us a review. It really is a huge help in getting the word out to new listeners. All right. Thanks again.